Hello, this is Ian Williams. I am president of the Foreign Press Association, and it is a great pleasure to have uh, my old colleague Nina Khrushcheva to come and talk to us about the effects on Kazakhstan of Russian influence and the effects on Russia and the world of the uh, incidents in Kazakhstan. Um, Nina has some internal views on this. Uh, we're just discussing her grandfather's portrayal in various movies. She disapproves both of Steve Buscemi and Bob Hoskins <laughs> with good reason, um, much as I enjoyed the films. Um, but more to the point is I was also in Kazakhstan 20 years ago and some of the issues that were here now, um, not many people in the West know about Kazakhstan, but it's a huge area. It's as, um, in fact, it was a British diplomat who said that Kazakhstan is a bit like Australia. It's huge, but it's hollow in the middle. You have the settlements around the outside and the interior, there is very little there, but the interior is also stuffed with hydrocarbons, which is of course why it's so contentious. And just to add to the topicality, the first time I went to Kazakhstan, it happened to coincide with an official visit from the, 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 the present salesman formerly called Prince Andrew, who was at the British Embassy um, touting business for Britain, which was deeply involved in the uh, gas and oil industries there. So there many factors at stake here. I saw railway, railway loads coming from China, trucks going to and from China, and the Russian influence is there. When I went, I think this altered then, but absolutely, a majority of the population of Kazakhstan actually spoke Russian. They might have been Ukrainian or Tatar or Korean, but the Russian speakers were in control. Well, not in control, they were in a majority. And the interesting part was that they deferred to the Kazakhs. As far as I can see, there's been no signs of Russian nationalist activity uh, both the locals and Putin decided that Kazakhstan is belongs to the Kazakhs, and they were very happy to leave all the political positions to the to, to the local ethnic Kazakhs. And understand underneath all of this, what people explained to me at the time, as I was examining corruption in the oil industry, was that the Soviets had always had the difficulty. Is that the names gave no clue they would see two people with entirely different names and wouldn't realize they were both members of the same horde or the same clan. And that there were networks of uh, nepotism, which were built up. And that's been brought out in some of the Al Jazeera coverage this week, I think, on, on that. But nobody wants, this situation is too complex for um, simplistic solutions. And uh, I'm Pleased to say that Nina's recent article showed that she is not into simplistic solutions and uh, too broad brushstrokes. So from, from a Russian point of view, what is Kazakhstan? And, you know, is, is it an ally? Is it an ex-colony? Is it the near abroad? Um, how important is it to uh, Moscow's policies, Nina? Uh, hi, Ian. Thank you very much for inviting me. It has been some years that you and I met, so very good to see you and uh, thank you those who joined. I am not a Kazakh scholar in any 
sense and, and actually there are very few of those. And that's why I think there's so much confusion going on because no one, very not no one, but very few people know exactly what is going on. What are those clans are doing? Is it uh, President Takayev is fighting with the former president Nazarbayev clans and so on and so forth. Um, I think what it really showed, uh, it seems to me, I don't know if I need to go into details of what happened um, and, and how it happened because there are various schools of thought of what happened there, but so far it seemed that uh, it was indeed the economic, um, uh, uh, economic discontent over the gas prices. Uh, in some parts of Kazakhstan, so they tripled, I think, uh, and certainly doubled in some areas. Then they turned very quickly because the government didn't act quickly, and so this, uh, this demands turned quickly into political demands, and the demands were the main one, old men go away, which is President Nazarbayev, who was president probably when you were, I mean, not probably when you were there. He was, yes. <laughs> he was there because he has been there for 30 years. In fact, he was the, um, when Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev with his perestroika, he said, well, we are going to give um, um, republics as much freedom and they can make decisions. But of course the Soviet Union would always put a Russian man on top of Kazakhstan. And uh, in the late eighties, there were giant protests about it. And so then they picked Nazarbayev, who was already a very distinguished member of the communist, Soviet Communist Party. He became the president and sort of then he uh, inherited the job. I mean, so, sorry, he became the general, the, he became the first secretary of the Kazakh Communist Party. And then he sort of, as happened in many different parts of the Soviet Union, he, uh, former Soviet Union after, the collapse in 91, he that just became president and went on for all those years. Uh, and he was quite successful in um, kind of keeping the clans happy, uh, keeping the oil and gas industry in his family's hands, but not necessarily taking everything. But uh, once you stay on for 30 years, by the way, good lesson to Putin, actually horrible lesson to Putin because it's horrible for us now. Uh, then uh, it becomes an ossified system. And so all this wealth that, that Kazakhstan was able to create, and originally uh, Nazarbayev was popular enough because he was giving it to a um, variety of um, kind of popular or population groups. He it's was giving stopped. some of it to them. He kept getting quite a lot some of it. Getting some of it, right. But now it really, because the system is so ossified and there's so many people wanting it, that they um, uh, that it's now really trickling down, uh, and that's what people went against. And they went against the kind of what they call or we call dvoyevlastia, which is the double power. Because Nazarbayev went away uh, and in 2019, and he became his official title was the father of the nation. So there was a president and the father of the nation, and basically most businesses belong to the clans of the father of the nation. So that that made President Takayev is, is a very secondary figure. He, as you may remember, was a diplomat. He was very soft-spoken. You mentioned that they spoke Russian then 20 years ago. M most of his addresses, at least the, the ones that I heard of Takayev's addresses to his people were in Russian. They were not in Kazakh. Uh, it's about 19 million 
population country, and I think about three and a half or four million is the Russian, but still sort of the lingua franca of the of the whole uh, of the whole area. When is... I was there, the government officials all had a teach yourself Kazakh book on their desk. Exactly. Because none of them spoke Kazakh, but it was necessary for promotion and for, for uh, <coughs> public appearance. So they were all learning it as they went. Right. And now it's my, I mean, now they do speak Kazakh, but I also thought it was important since we talk about the role of Russia and the role of Putin, it's important that he spoke Russian because his message was also, uh, because Nazarbayev, of course, had wonderful relationship with Putin. He was able to keep his independence. That's why actually when Ian and I exchanged, kind of we talk about uh, whether we would do it and how we would do it. And I kind of always, and I kept kind of bristling at the, 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 the fact that most Western press was, was writing that he's a pro-Kremlin president, both Nazarbayev and then Takayev. Like, this is not the case at all. They are friendly with the Kremlin, but that actually made Kazakhstan so different from other Central Asian republics, but also many other republics because they've been able to, you mentioned Prince Andrew, so they were able to have all this oil gas relationship with Western countries, with the United States. I think it's about 350 billion investment in it. Uh, China, uh, which was friendly with Nazarbayev, but actually the people of Kazakhstan was much more concerned about China's influence rather than the Russian influence, because the Russian empire we know uh, in, in, in a way, I mean, they know, but the Chinese were the original uh, muscle and the original force that they don't want to be under. Actually, one of the reasons that uh, that um, Takayev, when he, it became clear that he's losing his power, he immediately went for to this um, uh, security cooperation of the five uh, former Soviet republics, Armenia, uh, Armenia, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Russia, and Belarus. Uh, he went for, asked for their help. And of course, you know, the Kremlin, of course, is mostly in charge of it, uh, precisely because then the, the possibility would be that China comes in and it becomes the appendix of China, which of course he would not, uh, he would not want. Um, and one of the things, so the, the Russian language was important that uh, he was able also mobilize the Russians to come in very quickly. Uh, it took five days, uh, then, uh, uh, and then in five days they're gone, which of course nobody, thought they would right <laughs> Anthony Blinken uh very by the way kind of bad diplomacy I must say it was ridiculous during the when negotiations are going on he's having all this side um uh, slides at, at Russia but anyway he said that you know when Russians come in they tend not to leave so they did they did leave and uh, uh so uh the political protests uh, became uh, very quickly was taken over by, we still don't know exactly which forces are that, uh, but most, most analysts who know Kazakhstan say that uh, when it became clear, uh, it was already getting clear that Takayev was going to give up Nazarbayev in order to keep his own power, then they jumped on the protests to in fact take down uh, the president, and uh, and that's why Almata, which is uh, it's called the second capital, was originally the capital, uh, was hurt so much. It was hurt so much 
once again, a speculation, but probably as, as I've read and talked to a variety of people, because Almata was basically owed by very many Nazarbayev relatives or friends. Um, and they are the ones who were uh, basically, the, the idea was to take down Almata, the most important city, uh, except for the capital, but the most important city culturally, and then uh, drive Takayev out. So he outsmarted them. So he outsmarted those um, those clans. And this is, you know, I'm sure Ian, you've experienced that. You were working on their corruption by now. It was 20 years ago. By now, uh, people in this uh, in the uh, in the north and this, especially in the south of Kazakhstan. Uh, they have their own armies. I mean, all these relatives of, of, it's almost like Ramzan Kadyrov in Chechnya. They have their own armies because, um, you know, they need to protect the uh, oil wells or they need to uh, make sure that factory works just for them and so on and so forth. So these are the people, seems to me, or seems to experts, went in and tried to um, kind of influence, uh, ride on the, uh, on the um, uh, social protests. Uh, then, of course, when in order for Takayev to call, um, uh, to call the, um, uh, those Russian and other troops in agreement, it has to be foreign threat. It's like NATO, it has to be foreign threat. You, I don't know if you remember, uh, or because it was not much discussed, just said that there was a post-Soviet uh, enterprise, the security uh, cooperation um, enterprise. Uh, it was created actually not even after the collapse of the Soviet Union, officially created in 2009, when NATO, and we then can go to talk about Ukraine, uh, when NATO became clear that NATO is expanding and expanding and expanding, uh, then, uh, then the Kremlin decided to create its own security cooperation uh, enterprise just in case it never functioned before it was sort of a nothing uh, on paper. And suddenly it just went out and, and did what it was supposed to do. It, it was all very, um, I don't know if you saw the footage, how they were all leaving. It was incredibly ceremonial. Everybody was under their own flag. How many planes for the Russian troops? How many planes for the Belarusian troops? And so on and so forth. So it was all very well performed. Uh, but it was, you know, it was kind of... Um, uh, strong enough, even as an idea for them to be there, because they, I don't think, I mean, doesn't, there's no reports that they were performing any military operations. They were just guarding the, the buildings that um, the Kazakh forces uh, were not able to secure, but then the Kazakh forces were doing the killing, which still don't know how many. We know that they arrested almost 10,000 people. There was one information that 160 people were killed, but we once again have no idea whether it's true, how many, because then it was retracted, uh, retracted in, in so on. Uh, this also raises the question of the dog that didn't bark, because we have the organization with the Belarus and, and the other close allies to Moscow, but also as part of its counter against NATO and the US, <clears throat> Putin started the Shanghai Cooperation um, Council. And, you know, this is one of the points, the complete absence of Chinese uh, physical presence, even though they gave uh, verbal and rhetorical support to Takayev. And, and, I, and I actually think that's why Takayev did it, because uh, from little that I know talking to people there, he basically, when his power 
kind of when I would assume there's a Nazarbayev supporter, Nazarbayev family that they were afraid to lose. And so they wanted to um, um, kind of take down Takayev. And so then Nazarbayev comes in and appoints another president, something like that. Um, and so, but Takayev had, his choices were either, because a lot of Nazarbayev relatives, especially is in Afghanistan, they are, um, uh, what is this? Um, Sulafites, right? How you pronounce it? Uh, um, Salafis. Salafis, is it? Salafis, exactly. They're Salafis. Uh, and so the, <laughs> the options were not many. So it's either um, perhaps fundamentalist Muslim uh, now country, then, which was always very, uh, very secular, or the Chinese. Very, yeah, that's one of the things I discovered with the Muslims in Kazakhstan. It was a very sort of Episcopalian. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, were, they were nominally Muslim, but uh, let's go for a drink and talk about it. But but also, actually, but in, in the South, particularly from where supposedly those bandits came from, uh, it's already very Muslim. And in fact, people, women cover their faces already, which for many Kazakhstanis, and I was talking to friends, they're journalists, they said they actually, they are traumatized by this because it was always a country that, that was quite uh, free from, um, from any fundamentalist, fundamentalist expression. Um, so that was, that were his choices. So the last thing I want to say here is that those um, uh, uh, foreign foreign battalions that they were talking about, the 20,000 people, we don't know how many, but suddenly there were six attacks on Kazakhstan, as, as Takayev was saying to us. Uh, and so this is kind of an interesting thing. I think that's important for our kind of understanding of the future, how this part of the world, including Russia, is going to function. We saw it in Belarus already. So every threat to power becomes a foreign threat. So well, this goes right back to Stalin in the 30s, where if you have the perfect yeah, society, yeah. how can you have dissent? There must be foreigners causing yeah, trouble. Absolutely. I mean, it's actually <laughs> it continuous not even Trump. Stalin. It's not even Stalin in the 30s. I mean, it was it was Lenin. I mean, Lenin was the one who was talking about the class struggle and they're interfering in our uh in our um uh way of life and whatnot. And Putin has done this whole thing. I mean, I was here, been here for a year and a half. Uh, when I came here, there was about, I don't know, maybe 20 foreign agents or very- We should explain. Agents. I don't think we did that you are actually in Moscow at the moment, aren't you? I am in Moscow, yes. It's very dark, <laughs> as you can see, um, 720. Um, and so now it's over 100, I think, I, I don't remember exactly, I think 100 journalists and 365 organizations and something like that. So it's always basically the threat now, the threat for, from within comes from not within. Um, and in fact, when Putin gave his, uh, at the end of the year, annual um, press conference or whatever you want to call it for answering questions for four and a half hours, uh, he was saying very kind of deliberately and very, uh, very firmly that Russia cannot be invaded, it cannot be taken by foreign powers, but it can be destroyed from within and will never allow that. And so, of course, a week later, Takayev would go through the same experience. And of course, Takayev would announce that all there's a bandits train either in the West or trade in Afghanistan or train wherever. And uh, he and the security um, organization of these five former Soviet republics are fighting with it. So this is 
we think what happened, but also um, uh, is important. So he 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 won brilliantly in a way the tactical round, the first round. It would be very difficult for him to keep, and that's where our conversation about the future may come in. It would be difficult, very difficult for him to keep the power or to keep it stable because essentially he ousted Nazarbayev. We still don't know what Nazarbayev is. I think his press secretary said that he's in uh, Nur Sultan, which is the capital named after him, the capital of Kazakhstan. And uh, Alexander Lukashenko, the Belarusian strongman, said that he talked to him. But Putin doesn't know where he is. I mean, he Putin almost openly said that I haven't talked to him. I only know, I only talked to the, the president, uh, President Takayev, because a cynic would say he's in his the bank vault of a Swiss bank counting his ill-gotten gains, but uh, well, obviously still in the country. Well, no, some actually some experts say that he's in China, and the reason that all thing happened is because he's very sick, apparently. Or, I mean, I saw him because he was in um, uh, he was just meeting at the end of the. Uh, at the end of the year and meeting with Putin and meeting with everybody and he looked fine. But then suddenly apparently he went to China to get some health issues resolved and then it just immediately blew up and he himself supposedly is in China and we don't know whether he's coming back, but his family is there. So the family is not gonna give Takayev a free hand in doing all the reforms that he already announced uh, interesting. He actually uh, he uh, announced that he will do everything that that uh, the people ask him to do. That I is, the uh, <laughs> the, well, well, I mean, they now go into the, all the rich people need to have a fund to uh, for the people of Kazakhstan. They need to contribute. Then they are going to cap the uh, gas and oil prices and and so on and so forth. So he was able to. Do I mean quite impressively? He was able to do all these things quickly. The question is how strategically that can work out for him, and a big question for us, the Russians, and maybe for the world, because basically the world is more interested in Putin than in anything else. Um, uh, I think uh, that what is Putin going to to claim for that assistance and for getting out that quickly and making Takayev look brilliantly? Well, I mean, this is. One of the things Nazarbayev always reminded me of Prince Sihanouk in Cambodia, in the sense of balancing all of the different forces and playing off one against the other, being friendly with everyone, provoking nobody, until Henry Kissinger came and blew up this nice arrangement. Yeah. Uh, so it didn't end well for Cambodia. <clears throat> but um, the Nazarbayev was doing this internally as well, because he was balancing the various... Uh, the interest of the various hordes and the various clans and you know making sure that everybody got a little bit and you know obviously uh Tucker failed in this or maybe it was just that Nazarbayev's um friends and relatives were just so greedy that they didn't want to give up anything to the others uh do you have any feeling on that well that's yes and that's basically what happened that's what i was told happened uh, is um, uh, most of the, that started in the North. I mean, I, I don't know the country, but that's what we know. It started in the North because that's where a lot of those gas refineries uh, or gas pro producing plants are, and also a lot of oil, but they are not part of the 
uh, either they're not part of the official system or the official system didn't let them uh, become part of it because the rest, the official is already taken by all the Nazarbayev, all the Nazarbayev people. And so that's where, um, uh, that's where the um, uprisal began. And then it kind of spread quickly because Takayev probably like all of them, I mean, they, you know, you need to be Lukashenko who immediately starts kicking people in, 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 uh, uh, in the head. Although actually even, even with Lukashenko, I think it took a bit of a week before they realized that it's not going to go away and therefore they need to do something. So it was the same thing. I mean, the prices went down um, to, where, to, what it, to where it was, uh, the gas prices, but only in one region where this whole thing began but not in other regions. So in two days then they, or in one day, they then added a few more regions, but by I think January 3rd or even 2nd, it already, uh, January 4th, sorry, January 4th, it already went out of control. And that when became clear, and that's when those Nazarbayev forces, Nazarbayev connected forces or without not saying that he was organizing it, uh, that's then- Well, his relatives were actually in charge of significant sections of the security forces, weren't they? Well, exactly. And that's why I think, you know, it almost seems that this uh, um, guy, Karim Masimov, who I'm sure you, I don't know if you already encountered him then, or he's a later edition, but he was, he had very different, many different, he was the closest to Nazarbayev and he, um, at the time when it all happened, he was in charge of um, uh, security uh, ministry, but before he was the prime minister, so he was a very close Nazarbayev man, and now he's being accused of treason, as, as always, they always do. Um, in fact, you know, even those who in the West are deemed democratic or more democratic than other places, for example, current president Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine accused, accused former president um, uh, Peter Poroshenko of treason, the same thing that current president of Georgia accused the previous president of treason. And so, so it's a kind of, it's, it's, it's very much our part of the world. It was uh, the old so English saying that uh, treason doth rarely prosper because it, if it succeeds, you don't call it treason. <laughs> <laughs> but, but before it succeeded, you can call anything treason. I mean, everything becomes treason. So he's accused of treason and one of the school of thoughts is the reason they're not uh, and his ministry, some people in his ministry uh, is because uh, Takayev really can't, at least at, at this moment, can't fight with a whole Nazarbayev clan or clans of people. And therefore he just picked um, this, uh, somebody he can blame all of it on without touching without touching others. And also they, they may be some treason because it is interesting that in Almata suddenly it was a very heavily or obviously guarded place as a lot of places in the former Soviet Union are uh, in, in, in countries of the former, so the former Soviet states. Uh, and suddenly every single relevant government building got no security whatsoever. That's why every building was burned. So it must, we don't know that and probably would never know because that was, because now when Takayev is in charge of everything, it's gonna be his story. Who came in, who was in charge, who was not in charge, who is a treasonous, who is guilty, how many people are killed. I don't know if we would ever find out uh, or he will be allowed to find out. 
and so on and so forth. But so far, this is the man to uh, pay for all this uh, havoc that happened. And probably over some days, uh, we will find out more. Maybe there will more people be uh, be implicated. But Takayev already said that Almata should be restored, I think, in eight months. So I would imagine there would be a lot of Russian uh, builders and, and companies doing this or helping. And Takayev family camp contractors coming in. And contractors <laughs> coming in, exactly. I mean, so, there's, I, also, I mean there's the, also Turkey, and the Turkey, Turkey has a role in it somehow. Turkey's always been very big in Central Asia. It's got the contractors, and they've had a lot of, not as much influence as they'd like with the sort of pan-Turkism, but um, they, they've had a significant, they built a mosque there when I was there, I think. Yep. Uh, or some of them did, at least. And I presume building mosques is something that Erdogan would be quite fond of and, and support. But so geopolitically, every you know, here we have the game has been played, all the pieces are back at the starting place where they were. Um, but obviously everything has changed. I mean, geopolitically, this is in the fulcrum. It's the it's the the core of the great game in a way, in the old days. It's 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 the sort of pivot between China and Russia and the West and many other places. Um, so does it have further implications in the sense of uh, will Kazakhstan be able to go back to being independent now that um, Moscow has shown it's uh, how essential it is to the survival of whoever wants to be president? Well, I don't know. I mean, we don't know who we don't know Takayev. I mean, he was completely a man with no face until recently and now suddenly he just showed that he has a jaw and he has a voice and he can speak and make very quick quick decisions um it reminds I, me of a former secretary general of the communist party of the soviet union who was obscure until the time came <laughs> there you go exactly no it's true until the time came and suddenly they're just more important than than anything who's this stalin uh, guy who does he think he is <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think we have an answer to this yet, but I do think that strategically would be very difficult for him because he now has to be very careful, more careful with China even than Nazarbayev was because China smells weakness like no Russia even does. Then Turkey, and you know, Turkey went out, uh, I forgot which minister, but somebody important uh, came out and said the same thing as Blinken said. I mean, you know, you can expect the the slight or kind of an insult from Blinken. Well, actually, we shouldn't expect, but he's he's good at that. Um, uh, but we shouldn't really be. Uh, at least Russians feel like Turkey is an ally, so shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be questioning their presence there. But also Turkey, as you said, I mean, it it wants for its own. It wants its own piece of the pie there as well now and probably feel like with Takayev they can have an opportunity to have more influence rather than uh, rather than less. And of course, as we know with Putin always, uh, he's very good that way. If you ask him for a favor, I mean, one of the things that Barack Obama did in 2013, remember there was a red line in Syria with, with uh, uh, chemical weapons and he asked Putin for a favor to fix it and Putin sort of fixed it for a second. And then, you know, what happened afterwards? So when you ask Putin for a favor, you know, he's going to come calling. 
and you never know which way he's going to come calling and how and and what 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 are you supposed to give him and so i think that piece of the uh piece of the pie of the puzzle is still um very unclear but i think every piece of the puzzle right there is unclear because Takaev wants a stable country. I think it would be much more difficult for him to be a stable country the way Nazarbayev's country was. Also because he announced all these amazing political reforms that should happen very quickly, as he said. Uh, but this is a Central Asian country. I mean, you know, show me a Central Asian country that reforms and reforms quickly. I mean, Kazakhstan in many ways was a very, as you know, traveling around there is almost an oxymoron in terms in that area because uh, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, all the others, they had their uh, wars, their upheavals, they have re revolutions, they take down governments and whatnot, but Kazakhstan was stable. Kazakhstan, uh, when I was there, and I think from my following of it since then, was very good at uh, preserving the appearances and the, um, the, the appearances, the cosmetics Absolutely. Of a modern democratic state. Yeah. You know, as long as the money went in the right places, they were quite happy to have parliaments to allow some newspapers. They weren't overly repressive. And um, as far as I could see, uh, Nazarbayev invented what I called secondary looting. You know, the other people looted directly from the country. He diverted the money before it got to the country. Yeah, I remember no, one I gas contract was paid I, into I a Swiss that. bank account in his name. For 700 million and uh, he said it was for safekeeping <laughs> during <laughs> currency but it was his personal account in switzerland that he put the money into and of course he carried on doing it it's a very good very good way of putting in the secondary looting it's brilliant uh, and it also applies not just to kazakhstan to a lot of other places so we'll see what happens but it's it's something that you know going back to putin something he loves the most, that kind of 19th century uh, geopolitical game when you move pieces and you um, stun the opponent, but then you embrace the opponent and you know the way they do, you know, that Erdogan and Putin are just brilliant together because it's one is Sultan and another one is a Tsar and they kind of do this very traditional dance, like, oh, I'm on top, no, I'm on top. Erdogan was visiting uh, Russia, I, I forgot when, just recently, and they were counting, it was amazing, because they were counting antibodies, the COVID antibodies, and Erdogan had more. It was all, it was almost like they were measuring their manhood. It was, <laughs> it was ridiculous. And, and Erdogan said, well, I have more, and you, Putin, you should really take care of your antibodies. Like, whoa, what the hell is going on? So it is, I mean, oh, this, as, as as they would say in the 19th century, the game is afoot. Uh, if any of our uh, visitors would like to put in questions, could you please put them into the chat or on the Q&A and uh, we will see what we're going to do. Um, because uh, you know, I I'm, I'm hope there's people there with some expertise here. We have a Kazakh clan expert or, or, or expert on the hordes, then um, please do chip in and either add your expertise or put, put in uh, a question on angles that we've missed so far. And th the main one is, how does this affect US and uh, Russian relations in the sense you've already said, 
but Blinken has continued the uh, great Washington tradition of needlessly insulting the Russians and then wondering why they're upset afterwards. Right. Uh, you don't have to be a fan of Putin to think that he is. The Russians have got some good cause for thinking they were, um, that, that, that Washington was throwing stuff at them, and not least the economic advisors that destroyed the economy. Well, I mean, also, I mean, for Putin, I think this whole discussion that, that happened this week, uh, three discussions, they were really not about, for Putin, they were not really about Ukraine. They were about kind of stop putting me at a children's table next to the toilet. Are you going to take me seriously one time? I mean, what do I need to do? What do I need to shoot and blow up? Um, uh, so it is, <laughs> he loves it. I mean, the game is afoot. For him, it's all, it's all going to be who is going to art smart whom at, at, at what point. But I think with, with uh, um, Kazakhstan, in fact, it does if, and Takayev so far showed um, kind of partiality and, and gratitude to Putin, including speaking Russian, um, and uh, Putin also saying that I'm in, I'm, in, in, um, I'm in contact with President Takayev at all times, that uh, Putin is big on spheres of influence. I mean, unlike uh, Victoria Nuland, uh, uh, I don't believe that he wants to recreate the Soviet Union just because it's way too simple and kind of ridiculous because it's not po it really is not possible. But uh, he likes imperial influence. It's not that it doesn't necessarily mean he wants the empire back, but he wants the relationship of that kind. Um, you know, and who doesn't? Uh, it's one of the things that w when I was there, the State Department had done a survey in all of the stands. And apart from Uzbekistan, where anyone answered the question the wrong way would face consequences, most of the populations in the former stands actually expressed serious nostalgia for the Soviet Union. They didn't think the Soviet Union should have dissolved. They wanted the independence. They thought the things had improved. But of course, you know, this was... Um, this was not a planned landing. This was a crash landing from Yeltsin. He was, he, he, he was a drunken driver. He crashed the Soviet Union. Absolutely. He didn't, he, he didn't take it to the roadside and say, let's check right. the, check the bits. So right. they were all, people were abandoned. Russians were abandoned in the stands. They, people from Central Asia were abandoned in Moscow, treated as foreigners all of a sudden. There were factories producing tires for cars made in Ukraine in Kazakhstan, I think it was. So the, the whole supply chain was ruined. It was a serious crash landing. And, and I don't know, I haven't seen these surveys, but I never saw the Kazakhs as being inherently anti-Russian, much less so than the Uzbeks, for example, as a general rule. Well, I mean, it, it, it also, as I said, not an expert, but they could be. And uh, I think originally after the, you know, the. Kazakhstan became independent and Nazarbayev was in charge and was very firm. Um, Russians didn't have a happy time there as they didn't have in any republics because, and I can imagine that. I mean, when I moved to the United States in 91, I didn't have a happy time either because every American would tell me that, oh, we won the Cold War. How do you feel about it? And like, Great, well, thank you for insulting me every, mo every, every moment that Khrushchev was wrong. Uh, in the kitchen debates when they had uh, this debate with Nixon, who is going to live under which system, communism and, 
and capitalism. And so every American would remind me that Nixon was right, and I am now in capitalism. So yes, and I and I totally get it. And I and actually, uh, Nazarbayev was rather firm uh, in trying to um, to keep nationalism at bay, so to speak. Uh, although I think in recent years it got less and less nationalism than it was originally, which, as I said, I totally understand. I mean, because you know, we were the center of an empire and if empire collapses, whether it wanted or not, of course it's going to be. Uh, it was very clever in Kazakhstan. As far as I can tell, okay. the top job was held by a Kazakh, but the right. deputy who actually did all the work was a Russian or, you know, a Soviet. So it was sort of uh, managed just like, and the Kazakhs, as we said, have continued that cosmetic tradition since then of uh, disguising who actually has the power. Um, we're right. being asked, is do, are, are you fairly certain that the Allied troops, uh, the Russian and the Allies, have actually left Kazakhstan or will completely leave? Well, that uh, great question. Uh, we've seen they march into the plains. We were told how many planes left for which country. Um, but once again, as I said, I mean, the story is going to be told by Takayev. So whatever the story is, is going to be that what we're told. And since there's going to be no investigation uh, and no, I mean, clearly most of the websites, I mean, there was a wonderful website uh, functioning, kind of immigrant website, but it was functioning all over, uh, Fergana. And now it's closed because they were asking all the questions that we're asking. How many people are killed? When did they start being killed? Who was, why the security forces abandoned uh, Almata? Why did they allow all these bandits to come in? So there was no bandits in Kazakhstan before suddenly there are 20,000. Where did they come from? I mean, it almost has shades of the Capitol Hill. Who allowed all those people to storm the Capitol Hill? You know, anyone exactly. would suspect that the security forces were at least indecisive about their defense of, of the area. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's so, but but so basically, it does have all this kind of the uh, the palace school um, uh, trademark as as they as they develop. So no, we we really don't know. But I would imagine that. If there is a lie, it's not a very giant one. So if somebody's left there, it's not, um, it's not. Um, and they can yeah. come back very quickly. And they can exactly. And then, and now we've seen it. And I actually think that's another part of sort of Putin's, uh, Putin's game is to show that if we need to, we can go, and we will be so disciplined you wouldn't even notice how we come in and how we get out. And so I think that kind of to your earlier point how it plays out in kind of a larger uh, in a larger geopolitical area. So Putin gets potentially another part of his sphere of influence. And we should, we should mention because just because it hasn't been mentioned and it's a big issue is that uh, the, the Russian space effort is based in Kazakhstan at uh, right. Baikonur in the Cosmodrome. Right. So it's almost, almost extraterritorial. All, all of all of their rockets, all the people going to the International Space Station on a Russian rocket, which is what most of them have been going lately, until private enterprise took over, have been going from um, the Nazarbayev <laughs> private right. enterprise in Baikonur. Right. And they actually, and the first thing that the Russia, uh, that the Russians, and even Takayev, the one of the first things he said to Putin is that Baikonur is being guarded. 
and by Canoris be actually being guarded by their own troops. I mean, the, the, it, it, it is being guarded anyway by, by the Russians. Uh, but yes, I mean, there was a lot of, there was a lot of things that could have gone horribly wrong. A lot of things did go horribly wrong, but so far they didn't go horribly wrong for Takayev. And um, if he does manage to do at least some of the reforms that he promised, it may not be such a bad thing, but I mean, that system as, you know, you, you've seen it, Ian, and other people, I'm sure, who covered. Well, and anything that gets Nazarbayev's hand out of the till is not a bad thing in itself. Right. Well, <laughs> but, incremental but, but, progress. but at the same time, uh, Takayev would have to create his own system because he cannot. I mean, that was, a, Nazarbayev was personal power. I mean, it was a country, but it was a personal power. It was his own personal arrangement of his own country. So Takayev cannot rule that country because it was a Nazarbayev system. So he needs to create his own. Does he have enough effort? I mean, does he have enough resources? Does he have enough uh, people who are actually loyal to him? Because one of the reasons he had to call the, uh, the security people, I mean, for the security organization people is because he didn't have his own people to trust in, in the security, uh, Kazakh security forces. So the question is how quickly and how well he can create some other Takayev system. The fact that it's going to be personal power, probably because most countries are personal power in, in that part of the world. But Putin already held talks with um, the Tajik president talking about how we can protect uh, the border. And now suddenly we're talking about a common border with Afghanistan. Sounds familiar because that's when uh, 1979 happened when suddenly, suddenly the Soviet troops had to go into Afghanistan to protect their border. Um, so how are we going to protect that border? So he does expand his sphere of influence in a way. And, and in some way for him, that's a message to the West too. It's like, fine, you know, you want to uh, you want to scream at me with with Ukraine? I have this whole Asia now taken, <laughs> being taken care of. Our old friend Stephen Schlesinger raises the question that's bubbling around. Um, Is Stephen here, Stephen? Yes. <laughs> um, Nina says hi, Stephen. <laughs> with Putin facing upheavals throughout these various spheres of influence, what will he now do about Ukraine? I mean, does success in flexing muscles in one part of the near abroad uh, affect his uh, decisions on the rest of the near abroad, whether you know Armenia, Azerbaijan, Ukraine, and, and other places in the vicinity. Well, I mean, as you know, Armenia and Azerbaijan, he actually doesn't get involved that much. In fact, uh, Armenia asked him before for uh, use to, the, to use the security cooperation in their fights with Azerbaijan and the Russian response was, it's your own, you know, kind of your local territory. We don't have a dog in this fight. <laughs> right, like, we are not going because there's really no ex external threat. So we can't go in, technically we can't go in. Uh, but also Stephen, um, I am not, I don't know if I've written about this. I'm not in the school of thought that, that Putin uh, plans to invade Ukraine. I mean, I know it's a very simple line because it explains a lot of, Bruhaha in Washington and Victoria Newland can show that she really knows her stuff. And she's it's a payback for all the things she was unable to do in 2014. But
but it's really not, as I said, I, it's not about Ukraine. It really is about, um, we've been asking you, uh, everybody forgot. I mean, I don't know if everybody forgot, but people, few people remember that, uh, remember the Munich speech in uh, 2007 when Putin said it's a multipolar world and America still behaves like it is only, uh, only superpower and so on and so forth. Uh, it happened exactly when George Bush announced the missile shield. As you remember, they withdrew from the um, uh, Soviet, old Soviet treaty uh, and uh, George Bush announced the missile shield. They were going to put um, troops in Poland and put uh, troops in the Czech Republic. And it was supposed to be, I mean, probably was uh, against Iran. And everybody was saying, to George Bush that Russians would take it personally. He's like, who are those Russians? Why would they take these things personally? Of course he did. And from then on, that was, I think, was not even so much the NATO expansion, but from then on, we see Putin uh, moving towards what's happening now. Then there was the, I think, was Valdai's speech in 2014, a very similar, is that you're not listening to us. We have to take security, our own security on hands and so on and so forth. Um, so I don't think it's about reinvading Ukraine. I mean, I want to repeat it, and I said it numerous times, uh, Putin is not an idiot. I mean, I know he's very simplistically presented in, uh, in especially in American press, but uh, he's not an idiot. Just imagine the 40 million population of Ukraine that hates his guts. They go into Kiev and do what there? I mean, what? they Then the whole Russian nation should be mobilized to be soldiers, I will be mobilized to be soldiers in Ukraine to keep that population in order. So it's not about invading Ukraine. It is about making a point. And actually I want to send you Stephen to, um, uh, I think it's either this foreign affairs or last foreign affairs, I'm not sure, don't remember. There was an article by Dmitry Trenin uh, from the Carnegie Moscow Center who explains it very, very well. I mean, he's, um, explains Putin. He's not critical of Putin the way I would be, but I do take his, I do take his argument that, um, and what Lavrov, the minister, foreign minister today, um, uh, Sergei Lavrov gave a giant press conference, a little whiny, I must, must add, so well, poor Russians, we're always being disrespected, but some things he said that needs to be uh, kind of paid attention to. He That's said, been well, consistent. I mean, I, frequently spoke to Sergei Lavrov when he was the permanent representative of the United Nations. All right, you were there and then. He, he was palpable and he often expressed the resentment at the disrespect shown by the US. We right. tried to cooperate with them, but they scorn our efforts. We, right. you know, we try to agree with them and go along with them and they scorn our efforts. Right. So, you know, there is a definite arrogance from Washington which uh, certainly annoyed uh, Lavrov, and I'm sure it annoyed Putin and the other people in Moscow as well. And well, that and seems it, to be continuing. Um, and it conti I mean, and that's, that's why I actually brought this old missile shield, because, uh, you know, in America, we have 15 minutes of memory. We don't remember what happened before. But here, people remember. I mean, they really remember how we tried this, and then it didn't work, and then it didn't work, and then it didn't work. And this is to say that Russia, for such a giant country, which is 11 times those, it's a little way too touchy-feely. I must say, if you're such an empire, don't be so such a wuss. But <laughs> here it is. I mean, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, so I think, I think it is more about making 
making the, making his point. It is possible that, well, we don't know, but possible that with Ukraine, he slightly overplayed his hand because stationing those troops, we saw already Bob Menendez saying, well, you know, we have all the sanctions now that we want. And I don't think we should even wait until Ukraine is invaded. Just if they don't go to their barracks, just let's do it. Uh, which may happen because, you know, things happen, uh, but we'll see. I mean, I think it's still in the very uh, kind of conversational place, but but I really don't think that uh, that Putin is that stupid to go. And just even if you remember, and I mean, I'm so glad, Ian, that kind of you're here because you remember all these things and covering this, uh, this places, by the way, with with Lavrov, uh, John Bolton was the uh, was the U.S., representative and he was insulting Americans us. <laughs> right. He was like, who are you? All oh, these other countries. We, are <laughs> we do whatever we want. Um, that's actually how Lav Lavrov actually became anti-American in a way. Because I just saw it in, in him changing from being a great proponent well, of the Russia cooperated during the first Iraq war right. in defense of UN resolutions and got nothing for it. And it offered cooperation on other things under its own terms. But, um, you know, I'm certainly no fan of Putin and the, uh, the system. And they do pick the worst friends. I mean, Syria, Saddam Hussein, uh, the, you know, the, 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 list, the list of Moscow's friends is a rogues gallery for anywhere else in the world, whether you're American or not. <laughs> but actually, but the thing is, I mean, not that once again, not in defense of Putin in any way, but kind of try to explain that um, from the Russian standpoint, they have a point is that he tried. I mean, remember in 2000 when Putin became president, he went to his first, I mean, it's always very important. What is the first country you go to, right? Anybody remembers he went to England. He went to England four times that year. That was his friend. Tony Blair was his friend. He Enough went. Said. To... <laughs> some might say. <laughs> Enough said. Some of us might say. Well, some but I mean, it is, yeah, of Tony Blair. Of course, but it is. I mean, you know, it's it's still not Kim Jong Un. So let's let's just let's just. Sure. Say. Well, I mean, he saw in Tony Blair an interlocutor who was prepared yeah. to accept his point of view, was not going exactly. to bang his head with ideology, exactly. and uh, you know, was prepared to talk business, literally, in the case was, of uh, Blair. Same thing was Gerhard Schroeder when Schroeder was was a counselor. So, so the way Putin sees it is that he tried. I mean, he tried to be friends with Bush, and then in two thousand six, Dick Cheney goes to Lithuania and says, "Putin, you are not a Democrat." And Putin says, "I'm sorry, Dick Cheney, you are just the greatest of all of them." So it's the way they see it is that they've tried all this, all these efforts. So once again. Um, Ukraine, they're just going to stand there until something happens or they get something. Or it is dangerous. There's a Sarajevo element here, though, isn't there? Because he's got these troops on the border. Okay. And, you know, it's like the timetables in 1914. He either right. stands down, which looks like a bit of a defeat. Right. Or he uses them. And, you know, there's a accidents well, will I, happen. I don't think I think I don't think they're going to use them. I think they're going to keep whatever it is they kept from the spring and then they would move them. I would, because it's Putin. I mean, another thing is that we have to remember that Putin doesn't do things straightforwardly. He warns us that he's gonna do them, but we never read it correctly. But when he has troops on the border, 
those troops don't go. Those troops are there for show. And somewhere mm -hmm. else, remember when he did the, um, uh, well, these white, white, um, white vans that were going to um, Donetsk and Lugansk, the, what, what are they? The, yeah. the Red Cross, but they're not Red Cross. What's the name of this? The, um, the help, whatever, I forgot the name of it. When the trucks with help would go with painted with yeah. white. What, what is the name of it in English? How you call it in English? Um, aid supply. Aid, right, the aid, the aid something or other, the charity work. Uh, so you would have tanks go in one direction and those, that's how he does it. So I would imagine that probably the troops will station in Belarus because Lukashenko writes, oh, bring everything. And they would start exercises there. Something like that, something that, uh, that will take attention, that take attention away. Um, so Putin is still going to be very formidable opponent to, um, uh, to Anthony Blinken, I must say, and he's not going to insult him away. Uh, and um, uh, that, is, that, is, that is going to continue. But one thing that is horrible to us, it's almost personal, but also societal in, in Russia is that they were looking, the Russians were looking at the Nazarbayev way of doing things. That is you go away and you become father of the nation and somebody else deals with everything. So you're hoping Putin, Putin would get kicked upstairs to his dacha and count his money. Looking at it. And now that's it, which means now Putin is going to be there forever because he can't leave. He Interesting now- implication officially can't leave because he things can happen and he's not going to let it happen. So we probably all going to die uh, before him. <laughs> well, we've got uh, just one plaudit from uh, Arlene Schutz uh, says to the panelists, I'm not very familiar with the politics of the region, but I've met people from Ukraine and Kazakhstan and noticed they agree with you. So we're being validated by an online poll. Good, good. I'm glad. Um, so we're coming to the end now. And th this is Ian Williams with the Foreign Press Association. We've had a, a very timely discussion on Kazakhstan. Um, we got it in just, just as the crisis boiled down, but it's still relevant, I'm pleased to say. And uh, we hope to have more discussions of this, of the type of uh, reasoned and rational, non-partisan, commentary that we've just had from Nina Khrushcheva here um, you. and you know I've, I did ask her beforehand whether she preferred Steve Buscemi or Bob Hoskins as portrayal of her grandfather and she very firmly said neither <laughs> for, for, for very good reasons uh, I like them both but I mean I'm, that was an, as an acting that you're was not a dramatic you're not related you're not related <laughs> it wasn't my granddad being insulted so look Thank you very much, Nina. We hope to have you again soon. And uh, please let us know if this, you've got a paper coming up you want to explain to the foreign and domestic press here in New York. And to everybody else, thank you very much. Please sign on, join the Foreign Press Association, sign on for our future um, briefings. We have a program coming. This was rushed because of events, but we have a, a program, a lot more coming in the new year. And they will all be equally sparkling and fascinating, I'm sure. Thank you, Nina. Thank you, everybody. Yeah. Thanks. Bye.